Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the editor-in-chief of Harvardum. The September 2022 issue of the journal is our annual focus issue on atrial fibrillation. The first article is Impact Atrial Fibrillation Ablation on Activity Minutes in Patients with Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices. The authors used the Medtronic CareLink database to identify patients who had CIED with AF detection and accelerometer capacities. Of 4,297 eligible patients who underwent AF ablation, 409 or 9.5 percent were included in this analysis. After ablation, the relative AF burden decreased by 75.1 percent. There was no change in activity minutes per day after ablation in the entire cohort. The authors conclude that there were no clinically significant changes in activity minutes per day in patients with CIED. After ablation for atrial fibrillation. The next article is instance of new onset atrial fibrillation after transcaster PFO closure, using 15 years of Ontario administrative health data. Of 1,533 patients, 96 or 6.26 percent developed new onset atrial fibrillation following PFO closure. Over an average follow-up period of 8.2 year, years, age greater than 60 years and diabetes were statistically significant independent predictors of AF, according to Cox model. The authors conclude that the instance of new onset atrial fibrillation after PFO closure was relatively low. Having diabetes and age greater than 60 years. Were the most important factors associated with new onset atrial fibrillation in this population. Up next is atrial fibrillation mechanisms before and after pulmonary vein isolation, characterized by non-contact charge density mapping. The purpose of this study was to use non-contact mapping to detail the global conduction patterns in paroxysmal and persistent atrial fibrillation, and how they are monitored during PV ablation. Forty patients during AF ablation underwent mapping using a non-contact caster before and after PV isolation or PVI. Propagation history maps were analyzed post-procedure for each patient to categorize conduction patterns into focal, organized reentry, and、uh, disorganized patterns. The authors found that the persistent atrial fibrillation was different from paroxysmal AF. In demonstrating a higher region number and a higher prevalence of disorganized patterns, but a lower region number and lower prevalence of organized patterns and focal patterns. Coming up is effect of continuous positive airway pressure therapy on a recurrence of atrial fibrillation after pulmonary vein isolation in patients with obstructive sleep apnea, a randomized controlled trial. The authors randomized patients with paroxysmal AF and their apnea hypopnea index or AHI of greater than or equal to 15 events per hour to treatment with CPAP or standard care. PVI was performed in 83 patients. 37 patients were randomized to CPAP treatment and 46 patients to standard care. 
the AHI was reduced from 26.7 events per hour to 1.7 events per hour in the CPAP group, but AF burden after ablation was not different between groups. The authors conclude that in patients with paroxysmal AF and OSA, treatment with CPAP did not further reduce the risk of AF recurrence after ablation. PVI considerably reduced the burden of AF in OSA patients without any difference between groups. Up next is permanent pacemaker implantation after valve and arrhythmia surgery in patients with preoperative atrial fibrillation. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the prevalence and long-term survival of post-operative permanent pacemaker implantation, or PPM, in patients with preoperative AF who underwent valve surgery. Results show that the PPM implantation after surgery was necessary in only 2.5% of patients. Tricuspid intervention, cardiopulmonary bypass time, and endocarditis were shown to be risk factors for PPM. Over long-term follow-up, PPM was not associated with increased mortality. Surgical ablation was not associated with PPM implantation. In addition, surgical ablation improved survival regardless of PPM status. The next article is serin exosomal long non-coding RNAs as a diagnostic biomarker for atrial fibrillation. The authors first screened and identified 26 differentially expressed exosomal long non-coding RNAs in serine exosomes from patients with persistent atrial fibrillation compared with controls. They then performed validation studies to find exosomal long non-coding RNAs were consistently upregulated in the serine of patients with persistent AF compared with controls. The authors conclude that serine-derived exosomal long non-coding RNA LOC1079869997 could serve as a potential diagnostic biomarker for atrial fibrillation. Up next is the secretome of atrial epicardial adipose tissue facilitates reentrant arrhythmias by myocardial remodeling. The authors collected atrial epicardial adipose tissue and subcutaneous adipose tissue from patients with and without atrial fibrillation. The secretome was collected after a 24-hour incubation of the adipose tissue explants. They then cultured neonatal red ventricular myocytes with epicardial adipose tissue, subcutaneous adipose tissue secretome, and cardiomyocytes conditioned median for 72 hours. They found a change of potassium current and depolarized membrane potential of cardiomyocytes along with decreased expression of connexin-43. Cardiomyocytes incubated with epicardial adipose tissue showed reduced conduction velocity and increased conduction heterogeneity. The authors conclude that epicardial adipose tissue slows conduction, depolarizes the resting potential, alters electrical cell-cell coupling, and facilitates reentrant arrhythmias. These original papers are followed by two AF-focused research letters. The first one is titled Troponin Release After Pulmonary Vein Isolation Using Pulsed Field Ablation Compared to Radiofrequency and Cryo-Balloon Ablation. 
The second one is feasibility of wideband dielectric imaging to guide temperature controlled atrial fibrillation ablation. In addition to the atrial fibrillation focused articles, we also published the following regular articles. The first one is titled Intramyocardial Mapping of Ventricular Premature Depolarizations via Septal Venous Perforators, Differentiating the Superior Intraseptal Region from Left Ventricular Summit Regions. The purpose of this study was to differentiate between ventricular premature depolarizations or VPDs with a basal superior intraseptal site of origin and those originating from epicardial superior intraseptal using septal intramyocardial mapping. The superior intraseptal uh, site mapping was successful in 44 or 47 cases, or 93.6%. The authors found that a significant proportion of 45.5% of VPDs that appear to arise from the left ventricular summit actually have a superior intraseptal site origin. A significant minority, or 11.3% of these, can be ablated from the endocardium by targeting from an anatomic vantage point closest to the earliest intraseptal activation site. The next article is left bundle branch area pacing in patients with atrial ventricular conduction disease, a prospective multi-center study. Patients with AV conduction disease referred for pacemaker implantation were included. LBBBAP was successful in 340 of 364 patients, or 93%. Procedural success rate did not differ between indication, uh, indications or between patients with narrow versus YQRS. Mean LBBAP threshold was 0.77 plus minus 0.34 volts at 0.4 milliseconds at implant and remained stable during follow-up. There were four or 1.2% acute LBBAP lead dislodgements. The authors conclude that LBBAP is safe and feasible with high success rates for patients with AV conduction disease. In contrast to his bundle pacing, LBBAP success rate remained high over the entire spectrum of AV conduction disease and lead parameters remain stable during follow-up. Up next is the effects of beta blockers on ventricular repolarization documented by 24-hour electrocardiography in long QT syndrome type 2. The authors studied 25 patients with type 2 long QT syndrome. Beta blocker therapy decreased the maximal T2 over T1 wave amplitude ratio. Under medication, a broad maximal TPE intervals uh, were shorter at heart rates of greater than or equal to 75 beats per minute, and the maximal QT intervals were shorter at heart rate of 100 beats per minute. The authors conclude that beta blockers stabilize ventricular repolarization in long QT2 by reducing ECG early after depolarizations and by reducing abrupt prolongation of ECG dispersion of reprodation and the ventricular reprodation duration at elevated heart rates. The effect of beta blockers on post-induced ECG early after depolarizations is weak. The findings provide an ECG explanation 
for the protective effects of beta blockers against exercise-induced cardiac events in long QT type 2. Up next is factors associated with remote monitoring adherence for cardiovascular implantable electronic devices. The authors linked remote monitoring data from the Veterans Affairs National Cardiac Device Surveillance Program to clinical data. In 52,574 patients, the average remote monitoring adherence was 71.9%. Black or African-American patients had a lower odds of complete remote monitoring adherence, while Hispanic or Latino patients had a lower odds of complete remote monitoring adherence than non-Hispanic or Latino patients. Dementia, depression, and the post-traumatic stress disorder were associated with lower odds of remote monitoring adherence. The authors conclude that there are significant disparities in remote monitoring adherence by race, ethnicity, and neuropsychiatric comorbidities. Coming up is pacing burden and the clinical outcomes following transcaster aortic valve replacement, a real-world registry report. A total of 1,239 patients underwent the TAVR with a median follow-up period of 2.3 years. Patients who underwent new pacemaker implantation had a higher comorbid outcomes of deaths and heart failure hospitalizations and was associated with almost twice the risk of one-year mortality. Pacing burden, however, was not associated with the primary outcome. Furthermore, no significant difference was observed at the three-year follow-up. The authors conclude that pacemaker implantation after TAVR is associated with a higher one-year adverse outcomes, but this attenuates over time, suggesting that competing factors may play a role. Interestingly, the pacing burden is not associated with adverse clinical course. Next up is contemporary maternal and fetal outcomes in treatment of long QT syndrome during pregnancy. Is natural bad for fetus? Among 68 live birth pregnancies in 31 women with long QT syndrome, there were five arrhythmic events in four mothers. All arrhythmic events occurred in the postpartum period, and there were no arrhythmic events in patients taking beta blockers. Natalo was the most commonly prescribed agent throughout pregnancy and the postpartum period. The rate of intrauterine growth restriction was not significantly different in fetuses exposed to beta blockers versus unexposed. In the postnatal period, hypoglycemia was not seen, and one patient in the exposure group had bradycardia. The authors conclude that beta blocker therapy, specifically Nadolo, was not associated with a higher incidence of intrauterine growth restriction. Moreover, neonatal bradycardia was rare and hypoglycemia was not observed. The next one is post-traumatic stress disorder in pediatric implantable cardioverter defibrillator patients and their parents. 50 youths and 43 parents completed the measures. Among them, six youths of 12% met the screening criteria for a likely PTSD diagnosis, while 20 patients of 47% met a cutoff of PTSD on the screening measure. The authors found that parents were more likely to meet the criteria for PTSD than youths. 
In youth, PTSD was associated with medical and psychosocial factors, whereas PTSD in parents was associated with being female and child depression. Clinic-based screening and management、uh, planning of emotional functioning are warranted to address psychological distress in patients and parents. Up next is sex hormones and reproduction dynamics during the menstrual cycle in women with congenital long QT syndrome. The authors prospectively studied 65 women with congenital long QT syndrome and unaffected female relatives. Patients underwent three seven-day ECG recordings during their menstrual cycle. In women with long QT type 2, there are significant inverse correlations of the corrected QT interval with progesterone levels and with the progesterone to estradiol ratio. Inverse relationships of the RR interval with estradiol levels and the T wave duration with testosterone levels were also observed in women with long QT type 2. In contrast. No significant associations were observed between ECG parameters and sex hormones levels in women with long QT syndrome type 1 or unaffected relatives. These findings show genotype-specific unique corrected QT dynamics during the menstrual cycle that may affect the propensity for ventricular arrhythmia in women with long QT syndrome, particularly women with long QT type 2. Up next is a contemporary review titled "Aldehyde Dehydrogenase 2 and Arrhythmogenesis." The authors summarize recent research on the potential role of ALDH2 activation and antiarrhythmic protection, as well as a role played by the ALDH2 esteric 2 polymorphism or RS671 in promoting arrhythmic risk. The next article is a creative concept titled "Near-Infrared-Sensitive Nanoparticle-Mediated Photothermal Ablation of Ventricular Myocardium." The journal also published three research letters. The first one is titled "Correlation Between Radiation Dose and Myocardial Remodeling After Stereotactic Radiation Therapy for Ventricular Tachycardia: First Assessment of Dose-Effect Relationship in Human." The second one is titled "A Second Chance to Make a First Impression: Paralleling C Residues Staining the Surface of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices." The last one is Harism Society's survey assessing the im- impact of reductions in Medicare reimbursement for cardiac ablation in the United States. The final article is a HRS document titled "Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Arrhythmia Care." A call for action. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the editor in chief, Dr. Pen Shen Chen.